0: Their third was a real beauty. Just watch the smart footwork by Pushkac.
1: Lovely ball. He's been laying on these passes. Now the Benny. In comes a lovely goal by Farkashe Brayko.
2: Welcome to the Hungarian International, the Hungarian Football Podcast. It's quite an exciting podcast today. We're talking about Hungarian football history. On the show, we've got Dominic Bliss, author of Herbstein: the triumph from tragedy of football's forgotten pioneer. Welcome to the show, Dominic. Thank you. Uh, we have David Bolkova, who is the author of The Greatest Comeback from Genocide to Football Glory, about Bella Gutman. Welcome to the show, David. Thank you. And we have Jonathan Wilson, who is the author of a few books, Behind the Curtain, Inverting the Pyramid, Angels with Dirty Faces, The Outsider, etc., etc. Welcome to the show, Jonathan. Cheers, thanks very much. Um, Dominic, we'll start with you first. Erbstein, is kind of not that well-renowned in Hungarian football history or in history in general. Um What's kind of his story and um, why was he successful? Yeah, he's not
1: very well-renowned. He's forgotten, actually. But um, I think in in Hungary and Italy and England, most famous in Italy because uh, he was the manager of the Grande Torino, who, uh, after the Second World War, dominated Italian football. They won uh, Serie A five years in a row. And um, they then died tragically in a a plane crash on the way back from uh, an away game against Benfica in 1949 um, but he was also a holocaust survivor so his story is quite incredible um, as soon as I sort of saw that outline of his life I, I was I was hooked and that's why I wanted to write this book um, but also because I thought it's strange that someone can have such a remarkable life have achieved so much and yet be forgotten even by you know nerds like me who I, I really had no idea that this guy existed. Um, what was his role at the club was he the manager? yeah and it, i think in english parlance you'd say he was a manager he was because in italy at that time you had a sort of technico or a coach or a you know all these different sporting director kind of roles and um he in his first season at torino and in, in his early career uh, coaching career he would have been the coach the guy who picks the team the guy who trains them um after he returned from the from hungary after the war um Presumably because of all that he'd been through, but also partially because they had coaches in place. He took on a a sort of sporting director role, but he was more like a manager would be in, in, in the classic English sense in that he was still involved in scheduling things, in what players they brought in and in structuring the club. But for two of the four years after he returned or two of the three years after he returned, there was a coach there as well working under him.
2: Um, and how good were that Torino side? I think, obviously, a few people might know them, but for those that don't, how good were they? They were unbelievable. They're still considered
1: to be the greatest club side in Italian football history. They did a, a sort of re-poll recently because of Juventus's unbelievable recent success. And uh, I don't know who they put. I think it was Corriere dello Sport, but someone will probably correct me if that's not the case. And uh, the Grande Torino st- still pulled higher but then nobody would have seen them play beyond very old people but it shows that their legend goes on and that they're still considered to be the greatest they're still the benchmark for dominance in italian football um but they were kind of like a modern team uh, straight after the war and and also in lo- the last few years of the, of the war when italian football continued um they were seen as this kind of mechanical well thought out team like a precursor of total football in some ways or a precursor of that that hungary hungarian national side of a few years later where there was a plan where there was uh, off the pitch there was dietary supplements being included like vitamins and things like this they were looking at satellite clubs how they can bring in players that aren't quite ready and have them play for lesser clubs all of these things that had never been done before and on the pitch they were playing in a, a quite a, a fluent modern style and how much of an impact was Erbstein on most of that I think he was the architect of it. In fact, where he was. It's it's quite clear. All the people that, that talk about him coming into the club, they say he was given effectively carte blanche, make this club great, by uh, the new president, was Ferruccio Novo. That would have been just before the war. Um, and that's because Erbstein had taken Lucchese from the regional leagues to seventh place in Serie A in four years. And everyone thought this guy is incredible. He's he's done something and it was kind of like Graham Taylor-esque, I suppose, taking Watford all the way to the top. But then he got this chance, this big job at Torino, and uh, they, they told him, do what you think's best for the club. And he did. He, he installed a new way of playing, installed a new way of running the club. And uh, although within a few months he was forced to flee, he was still in contact with them by phone because they loved him. They wanted him back. And uh, the, the coaches that were there during the period where Erbstein was in hiding, or not in hiding, but living in Hungary, um, they would say that there was this kind of spectre of Erbstein. He was always going to come back. He was the president's favourite. He was his man. They knew that he was the
2: one that was pulling the
1: strings for the players they were signing and the direction they were going.
2: What was his? Um, what actually happened during the Holocaust with him? Well,
1: the Budapest Holocaust happened later than a lot of the, a lot of um, films that we're familiar with about the Holocaust cover places like Poland or Lithuania, but. Budapest Holocaust happened after the Nazis were completely on top of what they were doing they had mechanised genocide by this point and it was a really horrific the quick process where they were rounded up Jews in rural, provincial Hungary outside of Budapest first and just tens of thousands a day of Jewish people were put on trains to uh, concentration camps and um, for some reason well, largely because of international uproar, because by this point people were beginning to become aware, talking about 1944, um, it became the case that the Regent Horty, who was, although he was under duress from the Nazis, was still nominally in charge, he became aware that this was not going to go well in the post-war reckoning. You know, what what they had done was going to cause him to be the bad guy you know he was going to be punished for this and i think he he feared that he thought that he might be able to save his skin perhaps i'm sure political historians will be able to give you a much better explanation but effectively they did stop the process before they got to the budapest Jews. so budapest during the last years or last months of the war there when it was besieged by the red army it became this kind of horror zone for Jewish people, they were in ghettos, they'd already been rounded up but they were just having to survive day to day not knowing whether a law was going to be passed to collect them all or whether someone was just going to come and kill them there and then, which was happening Um, it was kind of like a wild west situation and during that period, because Erbstein was famous and because his daughter, his eldest daughter Susanna was a great ballerina they had contacts that enabled them to hide, that enabled them to to get work, essential work that that made them less of a target, I suppose. So his daughters and his wife were, were in a a convent that had been converted into a workhouse to make uh, uniforms for the uh, for the army, and that essential work kept them from being rounded up earlier. There were attempts still to close down this workshop and take the take the people out, but um, they escaped before that happened because they saw it coming. And uh, Erbstein himself went to a labour camp where he met Bella Goodman. Well, I think they already knew each other, but he he and Bella Goodman were in the same labour camp. And uh, they escaped before uh, when it was sort of disbanded and they were being moved around from place to place. Before uh, they could be uh, put on the train to uh, Auschwitz, they, they escaped together with two or three others. Um, with the help of the capo, the guy in charge of the work crew, who by pure coincidence was, um, had been Herbstein's uh, Batman, like his, um, servant during the first world war when he was a general, just by pure chance.
2: That is incredible. Mm. Um, on Gutman, obviously he's kind of a bit more well-renowned. What, what was his backstory during the Holocaust, David? He, uh, if you go on the internet or read, uh, uh,
0: various references to Gutman. um, uh, In football histories, and there are lots because, as you say, he's a big name. They're more than likely to say that he went to neutral Switzerland and that's how he survived the war. Uh, It's said that he went, he was in Austria in 1938. He went from Austria to Hungary for the 1938 1939 season where he won the league with Oipest. And then at some point, he went to Switzerland. And that's how he survived the war with other Jewish interns. All of that. It also says in these biographies that his brother was killed. All of that is rubbish. The truth is that in 1938, Gutman got a very highly prized visa to go to the United States, where he'd lived previously in the 1920s. It was a permanent visa. And he went there. He actually heard news about the invasion of Austria, the Anschluss, on the radio while he was in New York in March 1938. He could have stayed there for the rest of his life. You've got to bear in mind that the whole of Jewish Europe was clamouring, desperate to get out of Europe at that time. There were queues round the consulates. People were sending their children off, uh, knowing that then they might not ever see them again. And there's Bella Gutman in New York. What does he do? He went back to Europe. He must have been one of a handful of Jews who returned to Europe from the United States willingly at that time. The reason? He got wind of an opportunity at Oipest, uh, a huge Hungarian club at that time. There was nothing going on football-wise in New York, he loved football so much that he couldn't envisage a life without it. People often say, "Oh, the big centre half. He puts his life on the line for the team." Bella Gutman risked his life for football. He came back to Europe. He won the league. He won the Mitropa Cup with Oipest, nineteen thirty eight nine. That was the biggest inter uh, cross border competition in Europe at that time, the precursor to the European Cup. He won that. Then it said he went to S- Switzerland. I soon after I started my research, I wrote to the Swiss authorities and they've got a department which deals with all the records, all the Jewish interns that were there during the war. And I said to them, Can you give me all the details about Bella Gutmann? This is his date of birth. And they replied to me, we don't have anyone by that name. We don't have anyone of that date of birth. We don't have anyone by a similar name. So I started to smell a rat. And then somebody sent to me uh, an interview in Hungarian with uh, Bela Gutmann, which was published shortly before he died. He died in 1981, in which he talked about his labour camp experiences and talked his, about his escape with Erno Erbstein in 1944. So he was, therefore, in Hungary. Then I had another stroke of luck, further on into my research, where a an article was published with the nephew of Gutmann's wife, his girlfriend at the time during the Second World War. And this nephew, Pal Moldovanyi, explained what happened to Gutmann before he was in the slave labour camp. He was still in Oipest. His future brother-in-law, Pal Moldovan, the father of Pal Moldovanie, had a hairdressing salon and he hid Gutman above his hairdressing salon in Oipest. As Dominic says, the Holocaust, the de- deportation to Auschwitz got right to the borders of Budapest. Oipest, as you know, is right on the border. It's part of Budapest now. Then was a separate town. There were deportations from Oipest. So the truth is, this great great football coach was living like a rat in an attic above a hairdressing salon while down the street and around the corner, thousands of Jews. And as Dominic said, this was a the most brutal phase of the Holocaust. From the 15th of May 1944 until the 8th of July 1944, 435,000 Jews were sent from the Hungarian provinces, including Oipest, almost all of them to Auschwitz at a rate of 8,000 a day, one put to death every 11 seconds. So Gutmann was there. He then, at some point, got taken to the slave labor camp
2: from which he escaped. That is incredible. It's incredible that he came back as well and it kind of, in a way, kind of summarises his like, unconvention, like, unconventional nature, really. Later on, after the Holocaust, he went on to manage Milan and, and then obviously Benfica. Um, how successful a manager was he? He, he? he reminds me a bit of, I think Jonathan talks about in his book, actually, or he's spoken about in articles before, a bit like Mourinho, where he kind of, Flips between clubs and he doesn't stay very long. How successful was he as a manager?
0: Well, he was very successful. He won the European Cup twice with uh, Benfica. He also won the Portuguese League with Benfica, the Portuguese League league with Porto. He had that success before the war with Oipest and after the war with Oipest. He won the Brazilian League with uh, Sao Paulo. So he, he was very successful. But as you say, he didn't stay anywhere very often his only he Gutmann's often quoted with this line the third year is always fatal quite why he would have said that is beyond me because he only had one third year and that was at Benfica in 1961 62 in which he won the European Cup so it wasn't so fatal for him but he had no loyalty to any t- particular team no loyalty to any particular country uh, and that's probably not surprising given his experiences and not just during the Holocaust but before the Holocaust and after the Holocaust he suffered from terrible uh, Jew hatred uh, and if anyone antagonised him in any way he'd just move on to the next club.
2: This is a question from Axel uh, Eye from Twitter which is about Bella Gutman. He put, obviously there was the curse that, the kind of infamous curse which has been talked about a lot recently with Benfica losing in a lot of European finals He says, how was the curse of Bela Gutman not affected by him returning for the second spell?
0: (laughs) Well, good question. And this is covered in my book, The Curse. Uh, Of course, the Benfica fans are uh, obsessed by this curse now. Uh, And they've been in eight European finals since 1962, uh, since the alleged Bella Gutman curse. And they've lost every single one. And if any of you are good at maths, that's a probability based on an even chance of winning each of one in 256. So it's clearly affecting them. So much so that the story is that Eusebio, uh, before the 1990 European Cup final, which took place in Vienna, where Guttmann is buried uh, between Benfica and Milan. He, but Eusebio is obviously the greatest ever uh, former player of Benfica and was discovered uh, by Gutman in Mozambique, and on the day of the final, he actually went to the grave of Bella Gutman and knelt down before the grave and prayed for Gutman to lift the curse. Uh, but it didn't work because Milan won one nil. But you'll 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 see in the book where I talk about the curse in great in great depth that the curse. There's no proof that the curse actually happened. Uh, that there's also the truth that Benfica. And Portuguese press only really started talking about the press uh, about the curse around 1988 when they lost a European Cup final on penalties uh, to Eindhoven. So uh, the curse really uh, could be a figment of imagination, uh, but it uh, but it really preys on their mind. Talking about that that the question about the 65 66 season, he did make a similar comment. Uh, not the uh, not saying you're not going to win the European Cup for 100 years, but he made a comment like, uh, nobody else has won the European Cup for, Benf- for Benfica like me, and nobody ever will. That's what he said. But he didn't actually say that comment until after he left in
2: 1966. He, sound, he sounds more and more like Mourinho the more you speak of him, really. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> um, Jonathan, when you kind of look at football clubs from if you kind of go through wikipedia and you look at football clubs and you see the their former managers in europe in middle east in south america there's there's a host of hungarian people who have managed them throughout the 20s and 30s especially and then later on in like 60s 50s 70s 80s what do you think the reason for this was and why do you think they were so um why do you think they were so special
3: i think two things came together um the first is that uh, the, the first part of the world to have properly professional leagues, yeah, after Britain and Ireland, well, after Britain, I guess, Ireland didn't get a professional league till a lot later, was Austria and Hungary. I think Austria in 1922 was the first non-British professional league. Um, so there was clearly a huge interest there, and partly that was stimulated by tours of the first part of the 20th century. And then what happens and what makes Austria and Hungary different from everywhere else or what takes it away from the british model is that the the people who are fascinated by it the people who start talking about and discussing it are people who have who have been university they're they're educated so they have a natural instinct to to theorize to, to look at things in an abstract way and i think you can even i mean yeah this is a slightly facetious point but i think it you know there's some truth to it that whereas in britain Discussions about football happen in the pub where you're standing up with a pint. In Vienna and Budapest, they happen in, in the coffee houses where you're sitting down. And when you're sitting down, suddenly you can draw diagrams or you can say, okay, if this cup is a centre forward, this spoon is the winger. What if he moves there? And then you know, this, this salt cellar, if he's the marker. And so you, you start to to get what what we now recognise as being a sort of standard way of looking at game tactically of, of making abstract, making diagrams. I uh, know there's some evidence that Herbert Chapman did that in the early 20s but I, I think it was much more prevalent in the culture of, of Austria and Hungary and so um, this does this cause it is it part of it um, you, you get this boom in interest in football in Austria and Hungary and it is a uh, an intellectual academic interest at least in part and from that you get it's this great generation of, of coaches. What then happens is because of anti determinism huge numbers of them are forced to flee. So you get, um, uh, up advice goes to, to Italy and then to, to the Netherlands. You get story Kushner goes to Brazil and, and essentially invents Brazilian football as, you know, as we, as we now know it, Brazilian football had been at best, the third best in South America. It was definitely behind Uruguay and, and Argentina, not necessarily always ahead of Chile. um, and he takes European ideas. He takes the idea of a WM, or you know the the, the uh, third defender, which was not known at all in Brazil. And there's resistance, but he's, he you know, he leaves the idea and it, it flourishes. And you know, he he went to Flamengo in 1936. He died uh, in 1941. And I think he was only at Flamengo for for ten months and go to job at Botafogo. But Flavio Costa, the man he succeeded as coach, who then became his assistant and then succeeded Flavio Costa, then succeeded him. Although he was scathing in public of, of Kushner's ideas, um, he sort of slowly recognised actually this this is there is something in this. And then I guess because he's looking at it afresh, he adapts that and that leads to the forty four which Brazil you know in um twenty two years after Kushner gets there, with which they, they win the World Cup and, and revolutionise football as we know it. And you know, when I was writing in Directing the Pyramid um, where I also make the mistake about Gutman uh, about what happened during the war, I, I foolishly assumed other sources had done the research properly. Um, so I, you know, I, I own up to that. But if there is a third edition, I will change it.
1: Um, you include Herbstein in the uh, third edition, as well. <laughs> <Herb who>? <laughs> <laughs> um,
3: I You know, I was a, I was aware that uh, in terms of sort of how i how I'd laid out the spread of you know, the, the family tree of tactics, which. Yeah, from sort of 1980 onwards, becomes incredibly complex. Uh, but up to 1980, you, you can trace lines of influence relatively simply. And I was aware there was a missing link. that it was it must be a European, almost certainly a central European, and I suspected probably you know, a, a Jew who's been forced to flee in Argentina. And what I hadn't realised was that Imrego Herschel, a man who I I credited in the first edition of, of Invading the Pyramid, I hadn't realised that was Imre Herschel. And once I realised that Emerigo was a Hispanicisation of him, I did some research, more research into him. And, you know, as, as David was saying, it was one of these things where you have a series of strokes of luck and the, and the, the slowly of a jigsaw build, and you see links where you hadn't, hadn't realised they were there before. So, it, you know, the, the 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 breakthrough moment, the Eureka moment with Herschel was his daughter got in touch with a, an Argentinian friend of mine and said, there's a book coming out in Uruguay, using with match fixing, can you research this? And he came to me and said, have you heard of this guy? And I was like, Okay, suddenly everything makes sense. And you know his uh, Herschel's daughter Gabriella is still alive and practicing as a psychoanalyst in Buenos Aires and quite happy to talk to journalists and has huge numbers of files and great stories about Herschel and his war wounds. Um so you know we we can say with a I think a relative level of confidence he, he fought in the First World War that that, that story is true uh, or yeah you know, his daughter is weirdly lying about that which I guess is possible. Um and so, yeah, you, you suddenly find that, yes, Argentinian football had, as Brazilian football did, this Hungarian-Jewish influence, which turned it into this, you know, the great force we now know. So it's the two things. It's, it's this great um, flowering of the, of the late 20s, early 30s, and then the diaspora uh, caused by anti-Semitism. By
2: um, another Jewish coach, uh, the Hungarian-Jewish coach, was Guilherme Mondi, who's not. That well renowned, but he was he was a coach of the golden team with Gustav Sebes at the time. I mean, we can't really not talk be talking about Hungarian football history and not talk about the Martin Moggyars. Um How much of an impact in in world football did they have?
3: Um, I mean, enormous. Uh, I mean, purely in terms of England, I think that was the, the moment you know, when 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 they won six three at Wembley in in November nineteen fifty three. That was a devastating moment for English football. English football. Even yeah, there've been a couple of lucky escapes uh, in the year or two before that. Um, But England never lost at home to non-British or Irish opposition. Um, They never lost at Wembley to anybody uh, um, from outside of of Britain. Um, Yeah, they had lost to Goodison Park to Ireland in 1949. Um, but it wasn't just that they lost. It was that they were... I mean, 6-3, if you watch the game, is, is in no way a reflection of the game. That, no, is England, it? England are very, very fortunate to get three goals. Yeah, they really are. And Hungary are really sort of profligate. You know, it could easily have been 10-11, 12-1. And Hungary clearly eased off in the second half. Yeah, they, they opt to just hold the ball and sort of control the game. Um. I, and so, yeah, that that was a sort of scales falling from the eyes moment for English football. They had to accept that. Yeah, we, we might be the mother of the game, but we're, we're not actually the best anymore. Um, and then, you know, just to prove it wasn't a fluke, they lose 7 1 in Budapest the following year. So I, I think you can say that from that comes the developments, the openness of new ideas, the, the willingness to, to change traditional forms of the game, which ultimately leads to, to Alf Ramsey and the 4 4 2 and victory in the World Cup in 66. Uh, you know, the, the wider game. Yeah, they they were for a long, long time the greatest team not to win the World Cup. They, they may still be, but you obviously would have the Dutch of the early seventies and the Brazilians of the early eighties as, as contenders now. Um, and and yeah, you know, to go on a you know as they did to go on a, a three and a bit year run without defeat, uh, even in the years immediately after the war, when obviously football perhaps didn't have a, the sense of priority it does now, it's still an extraordinary achievement to win to an Olympic gold to, to, and to. To be unbeaten from then until the World Cup in '54, till the until the final, yeah, they they were one of the, the one of the ten greatest teams of all time. I, I, certainly one of the ten greatest national teams of all time. Um, and obviously that then then has a huge influence as people look to what what are they doing well. And yeah, you know, from a tactical point of view, the uh, use of uh, Zakariah as a very deep line midfielder, almost as a fourth de- fourth defender, that was a necessary step between the WM and, and, and the back four.
1: It's worth bringing into the conversation Jimmy Hogan, actually, I think. Because we were talking about English being left behind and the Hungarians taking the game to the world in a way. But Jimmy Hogan kind of took that philosophy because it wasn't welcome in Britain, I suppose, and because the opportunities weren't there for him in Britain. Uh, he took that philosophy of always be learning, always be looking for the next innovation in football and in football coaching. He took it to Central Europe instead, and and they benefited from that because that certainly was Herbstein's biggest influence. He, I think, the, the opening quote to, to to the book to my book is a Jimmy Hogan quote, and I think it was Herbstein wrote it in a column, paraphrased it because he remembered going to a talk that Jimmy Hogan g- gave about you know the bad coach lets the uh, the beautiful f- fruit die on the vine rather than uh, plucking it when it's ready, you know, and and moving on and and finding the next one. And uh, that's that's kind of ties in with that theory that you change a winning team rather than letting it go sour, but also change tactics, move them forward before someone else finds you out.
3: And then Hogan coached uh, Kushner at Dente during the First World War and, and then immediately afterwards. Yeah. So he was a very direct link there. I mean, that was sort of... the For me, that was the the the, the most important bit of invoking the pyramid. That was a bit that hadn't been registered, you know nobody recognised that before because in Brazil, Kushner is known as Kushner they get the R and the U the wrong way around. and so I, I met two or three historians of Flamengo saying well this this guy turns up in 1986 we don't know who he is, we assume from his name he's Jewish, we assume he's Central European um, but a uh, historian called Roberto Asaf who's written a number of books on Flamengo, he'd written to the FAs of Slovakia, Czech Republic, Hungary Austria um, you're t- trying to find out who this guy was, and they all telling back saying, well, "We don't have, we don't have a Krushner." I never heard of him. And then it was a, you know, a friend of mine in Budapest said, "Are you sure it's not Krushner?" Which is you know, a, a relatively common surname. I was, I'm not sure. No, check it, check it out. And we find, yeah, he's won five caps for Hungary and played for MTK. And suddenly, it's like okay, it's not merely is Hogan the father of German, Austrian, Hungarian football. It turns out he's the grandfather of Brazilian football, and that's when the family tree starts to take shape.
2: Yeah. This is a question from uh, Peter Guber, who's um, on the Mogyars. Um, he says, Do you believe in the doping m- mysteries of the 1954 World Cup final? I don't Do think you know. it's a
3: mystery, is it? I mean, I think it's pretty much accepted, pretty factual, even in yeah. Germany, that certain stimulants were taken. Um, I also, I'm not sort of. I mean, obviously, I can understand if you're Hungarian, you get really upset by
2: that. Yeah, we're, they're still better now. <laughs> uh,
3: and, uh, yeah, I know, I know, obviously, it would be a, a much better thing if that hadn't happened. But I also think we're naive if we think a lot of great teams haven't been doped up to the eyeballs. <laughs>
2: um, and uh, another one, last one on the mogyards. Um Who were your top three players from that team? Obviously, Pushkas is, is is the one, but Hiduguti was was kind of the, the game changer, wasn't it?
3: Yeah, I mean that's a hugely difficult question to to answer without having seen them live and and, and sort of understood them as it's going on. Hidakuti was clearly key to the six three at, at, at Wembley. I think Grossish's role is is often overlooked. That um, he helped redefine goalkeeping by by being much more um, willing to leave his line.
2: Manuel Neuer of his time.
3: Yeah, I mean, <laughs> I mean, there's an extraordinary bit if you if you watch the the, the tape of the six three when. He sort of comes to the edge there's a cross comes in from the right, it's overhit from um I don't think it is from Matthews actually, but whoever's on yeah, you know, somebody on the right wing then puts in the cross. And uh, he comes to the edge of his box and he probably could have caught but his momentum might have carried him out of the box and he just volleys it clear. And on commentary, Kenneth Wilson home is Oh, have you ever seen anything like that? <laughs> And so, sort of, yes, like literally every week, I <laughs> But I guess in 1953, maybe he hadn't. Maybe that was sort of revolutionary and shocking. And yeah, you talk to people like, um, well, Yashin is now dead, but you talk to his widow, and she says, "Oh, you know, um, one of the players he absolutely revered was was Grossish. Um, it was Grossish and a Bulgarian keeper called um, uh, Sokolov were his two great great heroes." Uh, I'm not sure how much he he actually saw of them, but maybe just their reputation, and this this sort of awareness that goalkeepers no longer were restricted to standing around on the line, but could actually influence the game, but could come out of their box. Uh, that was clearly a spreading idea and Grossish was, and his success in that team was was key to it. But I also think, from a tactical point of view, Zikaias was hugely important in that deep lying midfield role, and I guess in order for him to play that role well, you needed Boschick alongside him to to distribute the ball. So I mean I've given you about six there already. So. <laughs>
2: <laughs> and Kocic as well, his record goal scoring record was just insane. Um this is a question on um N- Niloshi. I'll I'll take this one. He's um it's from Dean Gripton who says, um was Tibor Nilosi Niloshi the great the last great Hungarian footballer, which I don't think he was, to be fair. I think Dertari will take that. And he put how well would he have done if he'd have left Hungary age twenty two? But that's a that's a tough question to be fair, and obviously I'm never going to be able to answer it with certainty. But um, I don't think he'd have done too much better because and at the time were were actually decent. They got to the Cup Winners' Cup in the 70s when he was there. They got to the semi final of the UEFA Cup when he was there as well. Um, and Hungarian club football at the time wasn't wasn't as obviously nowhere near as bad as it is now. So I don't really know how well he would have done abroad. I mean, I think of Datar who who a lot of people love. He's kind of a cult figure. Um, but he only played for Bologna, Olympia, Kosh, um, Frankfurt. So he never kind of like made it as a, as a true hero um, in, in, in European club football. So I don't really know how well Miloshi would have done. Um, he did well enough at Ferenc Varos and, and they were pretty successful while he was there anyway. So uh, this is for you, uh, Dominic or, or this is not really about Hungarian football, but I think he wanted to answer anyway. Um, how can an average man... <laughs> <laughs> oh, yeah, I remember this one on Twitter. Um, it's pretty f- harsh on you, Yeah, <laughs> 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 uh, Immediately. Uh, <laughs> <Dammed> with paintbrush. <laughs> <praise. laughs> uh, afford random trips, <laughs> yeah. money and time to write a book. Yeah. Oh, I actually was describing you. I didn't answer <laughs> <laughs> it really was,
1: yeah. Um, Yeah, first of all, he's done well to surmise I'm an average man (laughs) Uh, when he doesn't have a clue who I am. Um, I don't know. I mean, how can is this this a bit like those people who were watching Corbyn at Glastonbury? How can they afford that? (laughs) Two hundred and fifty quid. What does it cost to travel for three days to Turin or to Budapest? Um, I don't want to sound nonchalant about it, but they were my holidays during that time, and I combined them with meeting people who were going to help me with research this book. So. I would for those it took me five years I should point out to write this book because there was nothing about Erbstein he really was off the map completely and um I had to the little that I did find was generally wrong it's still on Wikipedia that he played for Brooklyn Wanderers which he didn't <laughs> and I still get asked about it when I do podcasts like this quite a lot he never played for them that's the answer to that one but um these journeys I would go to Bari for a weekend with uh, or a long weekend with my wife and I would spend maybe half of one of those days interviewing someone, or I would go. We would go to Budapest for a week, and on one of those days there might be a couple of people that would meet us in a cafe or a relative, or and the same happened in Turin and Milan. I did some of these trips on my own because I knew they were just going to be interview-based, but I combined them with with journeys that I would have liked to have taken weekends away that I would like to have done. Um, so, yeah, I probably ended it slightly out of pocket. As Simon Cooper actually deals with this in a totally different era, but in when he was writing "Football Against the Enemy," he actually deals with it in the book how he was managing to afford the trips while he was going. And I think it's just a case of if you're keen and you want to know, you'll make the book better if you pay for the trip and go. It's at your own at your own
0: expense a lot of the time. I think it's amazing what you can do if you've got a passion for something. Yeah, in both in terms of both time and money, you'll find the time, you'll find the money.
1: Also, digital archives mean that I could get hold of all these American newspaper archives and Italian ones uh, in my living room. I didn't need to travel to, to the States to get everything I needed from the 20s tour that he went on with the Maccabees. I didn't need to go to Turin to access La Stampa. I just typed Herbstein into the La Stampa archive and uh, went through all the major ones, all the major uh, occurrences in their archive and translated them. So um, that was... I suppose that answers that question. I think, uh,
2: um, Peter. I think the the overriding answer is uh, stop being lazy. <laughs> um. <laughs> I mean, it genuinely is.
3: I mean, yeah, you know, I've had quite a few people. Uh, I am thinking of one particular person, but I won't name him. Uh, who sort of say, "Well, you know, how 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 did you start? How did you?" It's yeah, you know, I I went to stuff. It's the only way you can start, and it does mean you're probably out of pocket. Um, I mean, if you know, it's not just writing books, you know, I, I got my. My, my sort of break my um, in, in journalism by being in the Cup of Nations in Mali in 2002. Now, you know, I, I paid for that trip myself and I paid for it knowing that I wouldn't recoup it. But there was a chance to sort of, um, you know, put my face or put my name in a, in a number of newspaper offices with something that they wouldn't otherwise have. And, that, that, yeah, that that's how you get known, is you go off and you do something, probably at your own cost, that might not work, but that, is different to what everybody else is doing. If you're just sitting at home writing your Manchester United blog, hang on, do you write a Manchester United blog? No, the I not More people Um Yeah, there's, there's a million Manchester United blogs. You might be writing the best Manchester United blog in the world. Nobody's going to see it because huh. it's, yeah, there's you know, a, yeah, a million other ones. So you've got to go out and you've got to do something different to everybody else. And you've got to make yourself the expert on a particular subject, however niche it may seem. And obviously, a book is. Is part of that. And I think most people who write books...
1: Yeah, we weren't expecting it to be Harry Potter. You know, I wasn't thinking, this is going to sell millions and I'll get all this back later. As I was going along, I was budgeting, thinking, I won't get this back, so let's make this a cheap trip or let's combine this with a holiday. It yeah. is tax
3: deductible. That's the other good thing about it. Yeah, tax- <laughs> I think that uh, oh, do, sure.
1: Dominic, Dominic raises
0: a good point there. When you're writing the book, you're thinking of the content of the book. And people often ask me, people from the business world, uh, what market you know, What market are you aiming at? And I just haven't got a clue. I just want to write this book about Bella Goodman because it's an amazing story and I'm obsessed by it. And you just keep going. And as I, think, I think in any field, as soon as a writer starts thinking about who they're going to sell the book to, and maybe I ought to change this bit because such and such a market might buy it, you're finished as a writer. And I, I write a lot about business and almost all business books are boring and rubbish. And the reason I think is, is because most business books are written by management consultants or business speakers who want to sell something on the back of their book. And that's why they're nonsense, because they're not thinking about the content of the book itself. They're not obsessed by the content.
1: It goes back to something we were saying just before we, went, we started recording about, is this niche or not as well? Mm-hmm. Because we were, we were saying everyone loves to read about the subjects that are included in all of these books. And and yet we've struggled with the tag of it being a niche, a niche story. But it's football, and how many people want to read about football? We just we know there's an appetite for that. We know there's an appetite for people reading about incredible human stories, especially those set against the backdrop of persecution or war, and and so uh and and a a plane crash in in this case or in uh, Bella Gutman's case a, a curse. You know, these, there's these extra elements that you think well actually this isn't niche at all it, it ties into all those subjects that people like to read about they just haven't heard of the protagonist
0: absolutely absolutely and, and, and like all authors we've all had our rejection letters there's a lot of you know to get a book published often unless you're a very established author you're going to get a lot of people who say no and one of the peop- uh, people that said no to me about gutman said uh oh, it's too long ago it's too long ago it was a that's a problem
2: with history. It is too long ago. <laughs> That's weird because I've read some books about the Romans. That's
3: a really good
2: <laughs> um, To finish up, we'll go for you first, David. Um, what is the legacy of Bella Gutman and how much of a legacy did he leave behind? Well, I think his main
0: legacy is that he really was the first superstar uh, football coach. So now you have all the Mourinho's and Guardiola's and Ancelotti's who go from country to country uh, selling their wares. Uh, to the highest bidder. Uh, there were obviously uh, managers who went to went from one country to another before the war. There were obviously great coaches such as Herbert Chapman before the war, but Gutman crossed border crossed borders more than twenty times. Uh, he had between uh, 1945 and 1967. I think he had twenty different jobs. So he was the first really to, to keep moving, keep pushing the boundaries keeps saying to his bosses if you want me you have to pay me more because the coach is really important to the team and before Goodman although that was in that was in the ether and there were great coaches it was Gutman who really who really clarified that message and nowadays we, we we make the assumption that the coach is important to the team but Gutman, that wasn't a natural assumption
1: And for Erbstein I think Erbstein's legacy is the way that Uh, the the game developed based on the game he started Torino playing. That Grande Torino team, the way they played, was possibly the foundation for uh, a whole generation of uh, Italian football teams before Catenaccio killed it. And then also for many other teams in other countries that that, that they built on this free-flowing attacking football, the, the idea that you did your homework about the opposition, found out where to undo them, and then planned your game around that. That was all new. It was he was basically the the, the, the theorizing coach writ large. He, he he looked into every detail. So if you look at Goodman as being precursor of someone like Mourinho in terms of personality, maybe Erbstein was maybe the precursor of someone like Mourinho or Don Revy in terms of the dossier coach, the planner, the the uh, the technical te- technician. Um, it's, it's worth we didn't point out that um, Erbstein and Gutman um, actually provided. Pretty much all of the players for an international match in 1947. um Italy played Hungary, and uh, ten of the Italy team were from erbstein 's Torino and Erbstein was the ambassador for the Hungary team visiting Italy, so he was wearing a Hungary sort of blazer with the players, including a teenage Puskus, uh, nine of whom played for gutman 's Oipest Puskus being one of the two that weren't. Um, but neither of them coached the national team, so they were they they saw this game. And in the papers the next day in Italy, they bemoaned that these two great teams produced such a washout of a match, <laughs> <laughs> and said there was one man in the crowd, Erbstein, who could have changed that if he was coaching either one of these
2: sets of players. <laughs> That's <laughs> class, um, David, Jonathan, Dominic. Thank you very much for coming on. Thanks very Cheers, much. Thank you. Thank
0: you.